Welcome back to Everything is Public Health. I'm MJ. And I'm Cass. So a lot of public health is about prevention. Like we talk about many such preventative measures and concepts and themes, like getting regular dental checkup help prevents dental issue, which is good because dental issues are quite unpleasant, right? So prevention has been a recurring theme on this show. Yeah, absolutely. And other types of prevention that we've talked about, at least briefly, vaccines, yeah, you know, vaccine preventable diseases, hand washing is also important for prevention, thinking about exercise and other dietary strategies that can be impactful for chronic disease development down the line. Yeah. So prevention is a very common theme. And then just after that, we also talk about mitigation. Like if we were unable to prevent the event from happening, how do we prevent the damage that the event does? when the event happened. So remember in the second episode we ever did, long time ago, you covered about breakaway streetlights, which is we assumed the event happened, which is the impact collision. Like how do we make sure that event doesn't lead to, I don't know, the car just destroying itself on a pole? Right. And if we're thinking about the essence of public health, we may have used these terms before, but we think about primary, secondary, and tertiary prevention. So mm-hmm. the first thing that you were talking about, MJ, about sort of keeping something from happening in the first place, that's primary prevention. And that's really where we want to spend our time, yeah. which is where public health sometimes has issues because if things aren't happening, right. no one knows. <laughs> we don't know how many things we prevented. And so sometimes it's, it's hard to understand what public health is doing. But that mitigation piece, if something happens, minimize some of the harms, that's what we think of as secondary prevention. And then tertiary prevention, once the event has happened, what can we do to get things back to the way they are? Rehabilitation, emergency services, some of those kinds of things can fit into either secondary or tertiary prevention, depending on where they fall. Yeah. So today we're going to be talking about the next piece of this logical train, right? I'm not sure whether it falls in secondary or tertiary. It's kind of like a little bit of both, but to complete this framework, framework is a strong word. I just made it up. So to complete this framework in quotes, uh, what happens when things slip through the prevention layer and slip through the mitigation layer. So the event did happen and the damage the event caused was intense enough to cause severe harm. How do we deal with this, right? This is the proverbial safety net. Right. And this is the tertiary prevention piece. The event has happened. Harms have occurred. How can we deal with those harms to try to mitigate the consequences of the harms? Yeah. Everything else has failed. What can we catch people with? And I think this concept of a safety net is... Also very important to public health because, like we said, public health is about layers. And today we're going to talk about one of those safety nets, uh, a safety net that a lot of people don't think about on a daily basis just because, you know, most people fortunately don't use it. But it's a very important piece of public health. Right. And having the safety net is really important for a wide range of things. There are safety nets for dental health care, medical health care. Food, sometimes for housing, depending on where folks live and what their status is. So we have a safety net for a lot of things, but a lot of folks don't think necessarily about our topic today as being like an entry into the safety net. Yeah. Today on Everything is Public Health, we're going to talk about the Emergency Medical Service or EMS and just how important it is to public health and the whole of society. Absolutely. I may have mentioned previously, I was an EMT for a very, very short time in my prior life. and I thought you were going to say it for a very, very long time. (laughs) For a short time. Unfortunately, I had a pretty severe shoulder injury and had to have surgery and and just had to take a career path change. Um, This was before I discovered public health, but in the 
that small amount of time, I gained a really large understanding and appreciation for why EMS is important. Like you call 911, people show up. They have to show up, right? That's sort of their whole shtick is that they are there. They're always there, right? And that's just something we'll address today. We are extremely fortunate and honored to have an expert on this topic to speak with us about this. Her name is Kate Elkins. So my name is Kate Elkins, and I am an EMS and 911 specialist in the NHTSA Office of Emergency Medical Services and with the National 911 Program. I have a master's in public health, and I am also a certified public health, as well as CHES, certified health education specialist. And then I hold a national registry as well as a Maryland paramedic. Super excited to have Kate on the show. I've known Kate for a long time. She was doing her MPH while I was doing my doctoral program. Really, really excited about the amazing work that Kate is doing. Before we dive further into this topic, just a quick note that this is one of three parts that we're going to do on the EMS. In our one hour plus conversation, we covered so many things that made me realize like, just how important the EMS is, but also how perfectly EMS ties into so many public health concepts, right? So for example, you brought up many times that no one thinks about public health until something goes wrong, right? That's kind of like a part of public health that just makes our jobs a little bit more difficult because oftentimes people can't see the stuff that we prevented. So on a similar vein, no one thinks about EMS until they need it. And kind of like we take clean water for granted and we take clean air for granted. We also take EMS for granted. We just assume that it's something that's always there. When planes, trains, automobiles or trucks have an issue or a crash, they call one number to have EMS responders respond and help. So 911 and EMS really are that safety net for trauma care, for injury care. But it's so much bigger than that. The system applies not just to highways, not just to injuries. It applies to diabetic patients. It applies to all the other medical conditions, cardiac patients. It's amazing having spent some time in the medical field, right? A little bit of time as an EMT, worked as a nurse's aide. The kinds of things that people call EMS for, Mm -hmm. sometimes very urgent, very necessary, but also sometimes because folks just absolutely cannot get any other care or services, they have no way of getting themselves to the emergency department. The safety net. Yeah. And so they provide a really important service, but it's also like people going from call to call to call, not having time, not having breaks sometimes to debrief after particularly traumatizing calls for service at times. And so just want to say a lot of respect for the work that first responders generally do and EMS in particular. Yeah. And I think we're going to explore this further, which is how is underappreciate a strong word? I think that's a proper word to use. Like they are underrecognized for sure. Yeah. Underrecognized, uh, sometimes underappreciated. So for example, the media doesn't help, right? So the media give us a lot of misconceptions about many things we as we discussed. So one of the things that people get from media is that there will always be 911 and there will always be EMS. I mean, we have shows all about yeah, they have shows 911 about this. in LA yeah. and in um, Austin. Yeah, I can't recall, granted I'm not a big TV and movie person, but I can't recall a single instance where someone calls 911 and they say, uh, the line is busy, or they say, we can't really help you right now. That has never happened in my limited TV show memory. Maybe one of our listeners can be like, actually, this show did have this instance, but most of the time, people call 911, show up. Yeah, please, if you know of something, let us No, but nothing is coming to my mind. It has always worked. The only thing I can think of is, you know, The Stand, the Stephen King book, The Stand. Just just do a quick TLDR for that one. All right. Superflu wipes out 
like nearly the entire population. Wow, that's, that's too soon. Well, here's the thing. This book was written, gosh, in the 80s, wow, maybe? prescient. So 1978. But they just made a new adaptation. Yeah, it's actually really good. Uh, we're watching it now. But yeah, it's like, oh, <laughs> hello, COVID. Anyway, people are, they get sick and they like die. But if you tried to call to get somebody to come pick up the body, like eventually everybody's dead. And there's like two <laughs> people left in a whole town. Right. That's a very extreme example, but yes, right? Right, but I actually don't even know that people called 911 and, and couldn't get an answer. It was just sort of implied yeah. because there were only two people left in town. So that's oh, not wow. even exactly... It's very dark. Old Stephen King yeah. for you, so... But yeah, so I think the media has always painted a picture that EMS is something that's just always there, but EMS is actually not even that recognized, even on the state level and the, and the federal level. For example... EMS... Emergency medical services is only an essential service in 11 states. Fire and police are essential services. But a lot of communities, a lot of states, EMS is not seen as an essential service. And so they don't have access to some of the tax revenue-based funding that their community may assume that they have. Only 11. And not every state has a coordinated EMS system. Like No, you think we just have it, but no. Maryland, we're very lucky living in Maryland. They have MEMS which is the Maryland Emergency Medical Services Mm -hmm. thing. And it's really coordinated, good data sharing, good information. There's like clear rules on what you do, when and where people go. But yeah, that's that's not the case in other places. There are a few other places that have these kind of coordinated systems, but it is not, I would say it's more the exception than the rule. Yeah, of course. And like we said, we're blessed in Maryland because we got Hopkins and shock trauma, which are, I think, the two premier sort of uh, emergency medical system in maybe the world. Yeah, possibly the world. So yeah, like not every state recognizes EMS as essential, but you might think to yourself, wait, there's EMS in my town, right? Well, here's the thing. It's one thing for EMS to exist. It's another thing for the state law or the federal law to recognize it as an essential service because that means drastically different things when it comes to funding when it comes to funding (laughs) (laughs) that's the main thing and when an emergency happens when things are designated as essential there are extra supports that are put into place to make sure that that service doesn't crack or you know fall apart when something terrible happens and so it's important to be recognized as an essential service. Yeah. Another thing is that people think 911 and EMS are the same thing. They are not. They are truly separate systems. A lot of people will say 911 and mean the first responders that are coming out to take care of you. But the telecommunicators who answer the call for help and dispatch those first responders, those telecommunicators, they have a separate sort of niche, a separate piece of the chain. A lot of people think they were designed in whole cloth together. They are not. Right. And for most of our listeners, I would imagine you could pick up your phone right now and call 911 if needed. Somebody would answer. You would probably speak to a trained dispatcher who would go through a decision branch asking you questions, getting information, and then dispatching to you the right service, which could be EMS. Not always. Or it could be police or fire service, which some firefighters are also EMS. There's there's some overlap there. But not every place that you call 911 has that kind of digital decision-making support. That system has not had the benefit of the kinds of funding that other systems have. Like the radio systems for those first responders got significant funding boosts, but the 911 system 
is still struggling to move from analog. There are parts of the United States that have the most basic analog system. There are some that have one step above that. There are some that have another little step above that. The general public believes that every 911 center across the country can give you pre-arrival instructions. Only about 50% of them have emergency medical dispatch. And those who don't have emergency medical dispatch, it may vary in what pre-arrival instructions they can give you. So most places have EMS because even if it's not recognized, people subconsciously recognize that it is a thing that people need to have, but not everywhere has 911. There are parts of the United States that are still struggling to have 911 at all and utilize a 1-800 number. Sometimes when you call, you have to call the specific service that you need. Yeah. <laughs> you don't get to call sort of the one-stop shop of 911 and then be helped with whatever issue is happening. I was talking with Kate separately, and we were talking about some of the work that she's doing with the White House and some of the work she's doing with 911 more broadly and talking about how there are tribal reservations that don't have 911. They aren't integrated into the sort of safety net that we have set up and some of the work that she's been doing, get that integrated. And the cool thing that she talked about was creating a system now when we have all of these technologies available, they can build a more integrated and more robust system, which is really exciting than what some places have, but they also don't have anything right now, which is not (laughs) good. (laughs) Not everywhere. To be clear, not everywhere. Right, of course. But it's an issue, like with the fact that some places don't have 911, the fact that some places have 911 that's so antiquated that they might as well not have 911. That's a serious issue that a lot of people don't think about. And a lot of people, I think EMS and 911, when people make funding decisions, almost always end up at the bottom of the list because it just doesn't seem like a pressing issue, even though it is. Another thing is the a lot of these EMS providers are underpaid for the amount of risk that they incur. It doesn't necessarily pay as well as other positions. There are opportunities to move in other aspects of healthcare. And it's a very dangerous job. And I, I think a lot of people don't recognize how dangerous this job is. I think COVID in some ways really put a spotlight on, they don't know who they're interacting with. That person could be COVID positive or have some other disease that they have no idea, uh, right? So it's a job with a lot of high risk and they are, not only are there shortages, they're also underpaid. We should have my friend and colleague, Dr. Jennifer Taylor on from Drexel School of Public Health at some point, but she has a couple of projects looking specifically at violence against first responders. So when you yeah. are oh, yeah. dispatched to a scene, maybe the scene, the incident was violent, right? Maybe there was a shooting or domestic violence incident or something. And EMS are now responding. You sometimes have to wait for law enforcement to secure the scene before they can provide care. Or maybe somebody is on drugs or alcohol. The patient is violent. Maybe the bystanders are arguing and, and that can put folks at risk. And so it's really important to keep in mind the risks that are associated with being the first responder on a scene where there could have been violence, not not just thinking about COVID, but then other kinds of injuries as well. EMS get called when people slip and fall or get trapped somewhere. You have to lift that person out in a way that sort of doesn't further injure the person. You're working in sometimes tight spaces. You might injure your back. Some bathrooms are very small. And sort of outside of bathrooms also, just like generally lifting people to get them onto a gurney, to get them down the stairs. If you're in a place that doesn't have an elevator, there are a lot of risks associated with it beyond COVID exposure, which is obviously really important, but there are other injury and and violence risks as well. It's very hard to lift someone. I don't know if people recognize this. Like people are heavy. Particularly if they are unconscious or 
are unable to assist. If they're not cooperating, like it's very hard to lift someone. And I think to think about how heavy you weigh, you need to lift that weight anyway. But I'm just, I'm going off the rails. But yeah, like it is it's a high risk job. And a lot of times their salary doesn't necessarily reflect the risk that they're taking. Some folks, importantly, are volunteer. Yes, they don't even get paid. Not all emergency services are paid. In many places, if you call 911 and the fire service comes out to help or EMS comes out to help, those might be volunteers. So they're getting paid nothing to provide this service to their community. Yeah. Segues really nicely to the next piece, which is uh, funding for these services for EMS and for 911. Again, like they're often overlooked when it comes to funding decisions. And as a result, they don't always have the resources to sort of upgrade, reorganize, or do the things that they need to do to. To function better in an evolving society. Currently, the way the system is designed in a 911 response, EMS is reimbursed for transporting patients to emergency departments. We're not reimbursed except for cardiac arrest. We do have a little bit of reimbursement, but most of the time we are not reimbursed for doing care in the home, for identifying patients who don't have to go to an emergency department and helping them go to another facility. In many jurisdictions, that's not even allowed for emergency medical services. So I think as an industry, it's incredibly critical for EMS to be better funded, to pay our clinicians a more livable wage, to keep those dedicated clinicians who want to work in healthcare and have the drive to do so in their community, in their patients' homes, and outside of the hospital's walls, essentially. Here's the thing. 911, a lot of times, is funded by a landline tax, right? Some sort of tax on cable But as you know, how many of us still have landlines? Not me. Not a lot. I don't have a landline, which means they are essentially relying on a tax that has a smaller and smaller tax base, which means they are progressively being underfunded unless that locality, which has happened, unless that locality makes some decisions about where these fundings are coming from. But not all localities make those decisions. I don't know if this is a thing that happened where you grew up. I've actually... Don't know that I've ever seen it in Maryland, and maybe that's because of the stronger system. But I remember growing up in the Seattle area, and there would be firefighters standing on street corners with a fill the boot fundraiser. Oh, yeah. So yeah. people would stick money, like they donate money to the firefighters, and they would try to fill up as many boots as they could because they didn't get enough money, money yeah. to work and to sort of provide the services. Actually, this is the first time I've ever thought about how messed up that is. It's really messed up. Because I've yeah. never really thought about it in this context, but it's, it's yeah. You brought up about fundraising. And yeah, there's a lot of cases where they have to fundraise, like the EMS or the fire department have to fundraise for their own stuff. There's a case, Bodega Bay, California, Fire Protection District. They did an online crowdfunding campaign to raise money to purchase a new ambulance. That's kind of messed up if you think about it. And yeah. I'm going to be spicy okay. for just a little bit. That's fine. In my opinion, EMS is a public good. Is that a term? That is a term. Yeah, absolutely. It's a public good, like electricity. Yeah. And if you don't support a public good, do you know what happens? Well, they need money from somewhere. So they become privatized. They have to turn towards... I need to... Okay, calm down. They have to turn towards other sources of revenue. And who has money? Insurance Mm -hmm. have money. They might start billing directly. And we've been getting a lot of uh, stories about ambulance ride that costs a lot of money. Yep. And I think it's not productive to be like, oh, why are they being so greedy? Well, it's like they, they have no support. Yep. Like You're not giving them the public support that they need to run for free. People need to get paid. Like These people are not, a lot of them are volunteers, but I think a lot of them should be paid. Yeah, when I was working as an EMT, we 
would sort of joke about granny go home rides, (laughs) which were when you had a person who was in the emergency department hospitalized, let's say, you know, somebody fell and broke their hip. They were in the hospital and then they needed to go back to the nursing home. They would be transported by the private EMS service because the public EMS was too busy responding to calls. And so the private folks would get called. And when I was working in the hospital in particular, we would jokingly call them granny go home because we (laughs) only ever saw the private EMS when they were taking people back to the nursing home, which is like a terrible situation. But the fact that we've had to privatize some of our emergency services because there isn't sufficient and sustained investment in our emergency services, infrastructure and response. Like it's, it's frustrating. It's frustrating. And it should should be a public good. Yeah, I agree. And there's also cases where some localities have to implement membership programs. I haven't heard of that. Which is so messed up. Like membership programs of like you need to pay monthly. It's like an insurance. You need to pay monthly to make sure that we have like EMS running. I mean, it's a smart strategy, right? You sort of sign up and you're paying for it and, and maybe not even thinking about it. But it's super depressing. That's very depressing that a locality needs to implement that. Yeah. Like there are other ways that this could be funded. Like, hey, maybe we do don't need to have a lot of funding for prisons because maybe we could do a restorative justice process and then use some of the prison dollars for emergency medical services. Yeah. Or maybe we, you know, kill the car industry, right? That's, I think that's also a viable option. You, can't, you, know, <laughs> you do that. know that an ambulance is technically a car, right? As is a fire truck. <sighs> Fine. So if you killed cars, you would have first responders hoofing it somewhere. You want them to come to you <laughs> on, on <bikes>. foot? <laughs> That's true. All right, fine. The next part of this is, so we brought up this idea that states as a laboratory of democracy. And every time we've brought it up, I've sort of scoffed at the idea and sort of mocked it because, you know, look at Texas, look at Florida, right? But I think EMS and 911 is the first example of why there's a valid case on both sides. Yeah, so EMS and 911 systems are regulated at the state and local level. The Office of Emergency Medical Services at NHTSA, we do publish the educational standards and the scope of practice, but that's essentially a floor for each of the certification levels and for the education requirements for them. And then many states will utilize those and some will build on top of those. Um, I think a lot of people assume (laughs) that EMS and 911 are regulated at the federal level more than they are. And I think what's important to recognize is there are benefits and there are drawbacks when things are regulated at the federal level. And there are some states who are very innovative and cutting edge and have had a lot more resources put into their systems and, and I think would be really offended if we, well, almost every state would be offended if we tried to regulate them. But I think for some states, it could be potentially detrimental to try and lower where they are. Um, others just haven't had the resources to allocate and need help moving forward. It creates fractures, maybe for lack of a better term, because depending on where you are within a state, there can be different systems, different rules, different communications, different guidelines on what you're doing. Yeah. It is highly localized, both 911 and EMS. On one hand, you want it to be standardized because it's better to standardize to bring everything up to a certain quality. But on the other hand, there's a reason why these things evolved organically on the local level, because there are certain things that a particular town needs that another town doesn't. So I think this is the first case where I'm actually a little torn on this. Uh, Usually I lean towards, no, you should standardize everything because that's better. But I'm a little torn on this about 
how to approach EMS and 911 because they're so local. I do agree with you. I think that there is value in having some standards in terms of infrastructure and funding level, whatever that level is, however we conceptualize it. But you're right. Places in Wyoming, for example, may need different kinds of plans and procedures than you know places in Maryland, like Baltimore, for example. Even within Maryland, think about the different kinds of things you might need on the eastern shore as opposed to the western part of Maryland, right? You think about Ocean City or Assateague. You know, there was that story not that long ago about a, a girl being bit by a shark, right? Like, you're probably not going to get bit by a shark in western Maryland. So there is a, a case, like even within a state, for some flexibility, but there should be some standards because we need to make sure that people are being supported and compensated and also given space to process. Yeah, right now, EMS is it's highly local. I guess like the funding, the decisions, the structure, it's all pretty much comes down to the locality of how they want to organize things. And as a result, you get wide variations in quality of EMS and 911. And, you know, I mean, this is something that we will definitely revisit because neither of us are experts on this. So uh, we will figure out what is the best way forward for organizing a better EMS nationwide to both take into account for local variations and the fact that we need to drastically improve the standards for certain areas. This brings us to the next part, which is a lot of them are underrecognized, underpaid, and underappreciated. And as a result, there is a high prevalence of burnout for these EMS providers. It's very hard in a population if you are kind of that not recognized, not as well paid, not as well funded community. But when everybody gets hurt, no matter who they are, you're the one who's expected to save them. You're expected to pull out all the stops to invest all of your blood, sweat, and tears. And yet you might not have access to a counselor. You might not have the prevention resources to prevent you from developing PTSD over the course of your career. I would argue with anyone who says that EMS and 911 providers are going to automatically develop a sequelae from this career because you can thrive and succeed and flourish as an EMS clinician or a 911 telecommunicator. You don't have to develop a pathology, but we don't have a lot of resources for prevention. So we are overrepresented with PTSD, depression, burnout, and suicide. I have lost nine of my peers in 25 years to suicide. And that's within a small volunteer population in a county just outside DC. That's far too many people. One is too many. And we have taken a very long time to recognize that our culture is part of the problem. We trained our people for a long time that you're going to see bad things and bad things will happen because you see bad things. (laughs) I would argue that that's not correct. You can learn and you can grow in stress. You can thrive, but you have to take preventive measures. You have to maintain your health. You have to maintain your sleep. You have to take the time to seek professional help when you need it. You have to make sure that you are recognizing in yourself and in your peers the warning signs of addiction, the warning signs of burnout, the warning signs of depression and PTSD. We can do so much better preventing these sequelae in our populations. Well, you think about the kinds of things that EMS and other kinds of first responders respond to. And unfortunately, in many places, when you 
finish that call, you restock your rig or you get whatever you need. You go you again. You go again because you're understaffed. Yeah. Yeah. You don't have the space to debrief. Now, some agencies, some states are recognizing this as a problem and are doing some debriefing. They're they're making some space for folks to really process some of that. And the place that it really starts is with our culture and our education. Our office publishes the National EMS Education Standards. And I'm really excited that this iteration of the standards includes more requirements at all levels for EMS clinicians to learn about mental health, public health, prevention, suicide prevention, not just for patients, but for our community and our population. We need to show them love. We need to show them support and adequate public funding for a public service. Come on, folks. So a PSA for people, uh, never ask first responders what's the worst thing that they've seen. Oh, that's, yeah, don't do that. Because not only is it, first of all, which is a weird question, and also like you're bringing up trauma that they probably don't want to think about. So if there's anything you take away from this, do not ask first responder what's the worst thing that they've seen. That's a terrible question. This week, the week that this episode is out, is National EMS Week. So remember to celebrate and thank the EMS providers that you know, either in person or online or just as much as you can, because they are, like we mentioned before, underappreciated, understaffed, underpaid, and underrecognized. And if possible, there are always volunteering opportunities in your community. You can donate uh, to help support some of the things we've been talking about. And if you're at a place in your life where you're considering a career or a career change and you really want to help people, this is a very direct way. Maybe you should be an EMT yourself. This is one of the most direct way that you can help your community is because you're literally physically helping them when you become an EMT. So consider this as a viable career. Although we do have to talk about this career in itself also doesn't get a lot of support, which is one of the issues that hopefully gets addressed. But we will have links in the show notes about EMS Week and as well as other resources for all things EMS. And we will release a bonus episode sometime soon, not the upcoming Monday, about how one become an EMS for those interested in this very important role in our society. So somebody doesn't become an EMS Sorry, because what, EMS yes. is, is the service that right. you could be an EMT or a paramedic or That's what you I know, mean. firefighter, a police officer. You know, Those are the kinds of roles that someone might become if they wanted to work in EMS. Yeah. How to become a role in the EMS. There we go. Yes. Or even a dispatcher. Yeah. 911 dispatchers are super integral and important as well. Stay tuned in the future for a next part on emergency services, and we're going to talk about the origin and history of EMS and 911 systems, and we'll be joined by Kate again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Everything is Public Health. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and spread the word so more people can learn about the awesomeness of public health. New episodes are released every Thursday on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please give us a rating and a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. It really does help the show immensely. Send us questions or comments to everythingispublichealth at gmail.com. Reach out if you think we missed an important perspective or suggest a future episode topic. Remember, it's EMS week, and so make sure you are showing love to all the first responders and 911 dispatchers that you know and love. 
Follow us on Twitter at EverythingIsPH or Instagram at EverythingIsPublicHealth. You can also find me on Twitter at Dr. Krufasi. If you want to support the podcast directly, we have a Patreon page. You can find the link in the episode description below. And remember, everything is public health. Everything is public health.